We have arrived at the end. The last stop on a season's long journey in the company of our private detective, which has also very much been the journey of noir through the 20th century and beyond. As we look forward to our final pairing, a short story that has nothing to do with detectives, but everything to do with roadmaps, comes to mind. In that empire, the art of cartography attained such perfection that the map of a single province occupied the entirety of a city, and the map of the empire the entirety of a province. In time, those unconscionable maps no longer satisfied, and the Cartographer's Guild struck a map of the empire whose size was that of the empire, and which coincided point for point with it. The following generations, who were not so fond of the study of cartography as their forebears had been, saw that the vast map was useless, and not without some pitilessness was it that they delivered it up to the inclemencies of sun and winters. In the deserts of the West, still today, there are tattered ruins of that map, inhabited by animals and beggars. In all the land, there is no other relic of the disciplines of geography. Jorge Luis Borges wrote on exactitude in science in 1946, the same year as The Big Sleep. It's fitting that one of, perhaps the, key texts of the noir era has been surveyed so endlessly. With decades now in the rearview, neo-noir feels like a map that's long since eclipsed the size of the empire, a map traced over and over, the contours familiar even as the original texture remains elusive. Tonight's films find the map of noir at its breaking point. All the beats are there, as is our detective, still navigating the fringes of Los Angeles. But who is he doing it for? What's the great mystery he's chasing after? Does anything anymore hold true significance? Tonight, we turn toward Paul Thomas Anderson and David Robert Mitchell for answers. Just don't expect too many. This time, our private detective may be in over his head. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend... Justin Johnson. And tonight, we're immersing ourselves in two noir head-scratchers of the last decade, Inherent Vice and Under the Silver Lake. Both are massively beholden to the noir genre and wear that badge with pride. And both feel like pivotal texts in the evolution or de-evolution of the private detective. We'll unpack this all over the course of the episode, but let's kick things off with a film I know we've both been excited to talk about. Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend, 
and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that. Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So where would I uh, find him? He's technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. You got a spare picture I can borrow? Ah! Mm Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. Released in 2014 and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, Inherent Vice stars Joaquin Phoenix, Catherine Waterston, Josh Brolin, Joanna Newsom, Owen Wilson, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, it uh, involves in private investigator Doc Sportello, who's paid a visit by his ex-girlfriend Shasta Faye Hepworth who wants him to look into the disappearance of her current man, real estate mogul Mickey Wolfman. Seems that Mickey, long known for his ties to the Aryan Brotherhood, has had a change of heart and is attempting to do some good in his life. Soon, other cases are getting folded in, including the death of Mickey's bodyguard and the disappearance of possible activist Coy Harlingen. Meanwhile, Doc must contend with police detective Bigfoot Bjornsson, uh, the death of whose own partner factors into the mounting madness. Will Doc get to the bottom of it all? Is Mickey Wolfman alive or dead? And who or what is the Golden Fang anyway? Huh. This is um, this is quite a movie based on quite a book. Uh, Fred, what's your experience with Inherent Vice? Uh, so we are both uh, Pynchon fans here. Um, probably unsurprising considering uh the the pretentious way we talk um <laughs> but uh so yeah i read the book i loved it uh i was excited for them also a pta fan of course um uh just uh you know most basic of tastes for uh white guys with glasses and uh so i was excited for this movie and uh, i watched it when it came out in theaters i think did we I don't think we saw it together. I remember seeing. I'm pretty sure I saw it at the music box, though. I I don't know if we saw it together. I don't I don't specifically recall who I saw this with, if anyone. Um, so maybe maybe not. Hmm. Uh, but uh, but no, it's um, it's a movie that's only gone up in in my estimation since I first watched it. I think honestly, returning to it after watching so so many more of the. Uh, films that it's referencing and building on just further helped me to enjoy and appreciate what it's doing. And also, I, uh, I was just able to appreciate the the cast even more this time around. Like, uh, I think this was my first time really being coming aware of Catherine Waterston. Um, yeah, oh, this was this is definitely what what put her um, or catapulted her into another yeah. level of notice. No doubt about it. Uh, so yeah, no, but it's, uh, it's, uh, as I've talked about before, this is kind of a, a particular strand of noir and even private eye noir that I, I just love. So I'm, I'm excited that we're finally here. How about you? Uh, well, I, uh, I also have been a fan of this movie for a while. However, I haven't seen it since theaters, uh, or hadn't seen it since theaters. And, uh, partly knowing that this was coming down the line, partly just cause I was, 
uh, I found myself on a on a Thomas Pynchon kick anyway, and was um, and was going through some of his books I hadn't read over over the last fall. Uh, uh, actually, on the way back from on the drive down to New Orleans from Chicago over after seeing Fred over New Year's, I listened to the audiobook of this and then promptly rewatched after I got home. So I got to to go through the novel and uh and then have a, another long overdue second viewing of this. Um I I am also clearly a fan of of Pynchon, definitely a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson. I would have probably ranked this kind of middle of the pack for PTA, but I got to say that just because of the scope of this project and and because of coming right off the novel and uh, and just everything kind of aligning right, I'm I'm inclined uh, at the, this moment to rank it far closer to the top of of his his films for me. It really connected with me this time around. I really appreciate it in a new way. Um, visiting it at the tail end of this whole project. Yeah, no. I, also, I would have been like you know mid mid tier PTA, which is still you know. Leagues better right. than you know most, <laughs> most other directors, but pretty respectable. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this time around, I I just felt like I got more of what he was doing, um, and especially watching it so close behind or close after the long goodbye, I was like, oh, this is another uh, Altman homage. Absolutely, um, and like I would, you know, it's kind of like in the air, but just really, I was like, oh, it's not just kind of the seventies California thing; it's like thematically that is absolutely what he's doing and um and i i'm gonna go i'm gonna go as far as to say that i i think that um i think that he improved a bit on the the novel and i'm a i'm a pretty big fan of the of of pension in general and of everything i've been reading of his uh love the love uh, mason dixon love against the day i still have to tackle gravity's rainbow uh, but, um, but, and, and I liked, I liked Inherent Vice quite a bit, but I think that, um, I, I think it's a miracle the thing got adapted in the first place. And he really does strike a good, he makes, he makes smart edits to it. He strikes a good tone. And, um, and I, I think that it just translate because, because it's something so inherently cinematic, um, already, it, it, it's, it's a novel that, um, uh, one thing, one thing that gets dropped from from it in movie form, but I don't think it I don't think it matters is it's filled with film references. Um, uh, Pynchon is just constantly dropping titles uh, and and going through. And there's a running gag throughout the novel about John Garfield and until um, until Doc ends up wearing a, a suit that John Garfield wore later on at, a, at an event. Um, but, but that's a a whole strand that gets completely excised, but it, it, it's okay. The cinematic tie still, I don't know, it it translates really well, even, even though this is one of our, our few LA set noirs that, that, that isn't immersing itself in the Hollywood system. That's something that's become really common to, uh, to most that we've been seeing, uh, certainly in the last few decades. Yeah. No, that's a great point that I hadn't thought about. But yeah, that that is absolutely. I, it's appreciated too. I think like it, and it, cause I don't think it would have 
done anything for the thematic interests of the film to explore Hollywood. No, no, I think it would it would have been there's enough layers to it already. It doesn't it doesn't need that. And um and the in the book they amount to really just asides that different characters have. There's no there's no grander point to it except to add a little bit more texture to the the novel. Mm-hmm. Um the other big thing that the 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 film cuts out from from the novel is there's a, a whole Las Vegas subplot um which which does feature an amusing um, amusing setup that, that there's actually a full bet going on about whether Mickey Wolfman is alive or not. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, that, that portion involves more of uh, more of um, uh, what's it? Puck Beaverton, the, 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 the Nazi. Um, oh, sure. And he's, he's heavily involved in that section of the plot, but that all gets excised or condensed heavily into what we end up getting in the film. Uh, it all works. Uh, no, I, I mean, there's, there's just so much that, that Anderson is juggling here. Um, well, where to even begin? There is sort of a run here from there will be blood to the master to this that feel like his, like he gets as big as he can with his films. And then at that point he pivots and, uh, you know, since then, like Phantom Thread and Liquor's Pizza both feel kind of more re- retrenching back to a much more intimate focus. You know, I mean, it they still like take over take place over a span of time and and have a cast of characters, but there's just a scope to this kind of period of his work that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm a I am a massive fan of Phantom Thread. That uh, if, oh, if you made me movies that year, yeah. If you made me pick my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson, I would, I would go there. That's fair. I think I'd probably be, I'd be boring, and I'd either choose There Will Be Blood or The Master. But uh, uh, Phantom Thread would probably be a, a, a close third behind those two. Anyway, he's a great director, um, and he's capable <laughs> of a, uh, of of a whole lot. Uh, it's it's really interesting to me that this is one um, aside from There Will Be Blood. This is his only. Um, a whole, only adaptation, right? Right, and that's uh, like barely. And yeah, adaptation. there will be blood barely count. count. So this, but th- this is, I guess, if you're going to adapt a pension novel, this is probably one of the ones you could wrap your head around. Um, but but still, uh, still takes quite a bit. And I think tonally, uh, tonally, this is interesting. And I don't, I I think that on release, uh, one, anyone coming into this um, is uh, is just being familiar with PTA does not make you familiar with Paul Thomas An- or sorry, being familiar with Paul Thomas Anderson does not make you familiar with Pynchon. Um, so, so grasping that Pynchon tone is not a thing that anyone's really expecting. The other thing that I don't think necessarily does anyone on first viewing any favors to this is the inevitable big Lebowski comparisons that you feel sure. out of, uh, out of, you know, stoner detective navigating Los Angeles. Um, I, I feel like if you go in expecting something in that vein, that's not that's not what he has in store for you. And 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 good, because uh, I, I think he he walks a really fine comedic line here where it's playful and mm-hmm. fun, but it's never and, and there and there's moments that I think are deeply hilarious. Uh, but it's um, but not in not in that same way that that you derive out of the Big Lebowski. No, yeah, I mean it's just you know, 
Lebowski is so much the Coens, whereas this is a pretty good mix of PTA and Pynchon. And yeah, the this it's just surface similarities between those those two pictures. This is really doing its own thing. Um yeah, I mean let's talk about those those performances. Uh yeah. Well, we gotta start with Joaquin. I mean, I am not the biggest fan of his recent uh like well, I don't know. The back to back of uh You Were Never There, which I really enjoyed as a movie and Joker, which I didn't. Uh, <laughs> Let's I not like, speak. <laughs> well, yeah, but that aside, just like in a from a performance angle, I was like, okay, we get it. You can do intensity and mm-hmm. just be like a broken man in the world. Um, and but I I miss him this having hit. fun like this. This hit at a period between this and her. I was yeah, I was the one. at that time that Joaquin Phoenix could can literally do anything. He didn't need to convince me any further. And I'm a bit, I like Two Lovers quite a bit from James Gray. I think he. So no, Phoenix. I think Phoenix is a is an amazing actor. I think that uh, I I think that this was this was always going to be a tricky performance to capture, especially because he's. I mean, he's got to walk that uh, that line of of cool, but befuddled, but, um, comic, but also, um, but, but also serious to a degree about what he's doing. Um, I, I it's, uh, it's, it's a, a tricky role. Um, and he's got to be able to play off of literally everyone, um, in, in, in a massive cast that just keeps rolling out new familiar faces. Yeah. And that's the, you know, the beautiful thing about having somebody of Paul Thomas Anderson's stature doing this movie is that that he can bring in this incredible cast for you know one scene two scene roles like down to having his wife Maya Rudolph or not my wife but partner Maya Rudolph play a nurse who has like one funny exchange and that's kind of it but you're just like yeah Maya Rudolph great I was I was sad um I know it's been you you haven't read the book in uh in much longer than me so it was all like fresh in my mind but I was I'm wondering if on the cutting room floor, there's a there's a scene in the novel later on um, where where um, she is um, where she's revealed to like try have tried to broker a romance between um, between Michael Kenneth Williams character Tariq and um, and uh, what's the uh, the the sister of the bodyguard that that's killed um and and like he walks in and finds them having sex on the floor in his office and she's like been maya rudolph's character that um playing matchmaker for him for for the two of them but that all gets that that gets cut from the the movie um Mm -hmm. and and i wonder if that was still filmed and just didn't make it in uh you're right i i don't really remember that but uh (laughs) but maybe yeah um i wouldn't be surprised like i can't i I, while I agree that this is one of the better books to adapt to a film, I still can't imagine <laughs> no. uh, that process. No, not not at all. Um, what did you make of Catherine Waterston? Uh, she's great. Now, like I said, this was definitely the thing that put her on, on my radar, on a lot of people's radar. Um, I feel like the size of her ensuing roles has not matched what people thought might 
happened to her career after this, but she's continued to do great work. Like I'm always excited to see her in a movie, but there was like a moment where it was like it girl. And, and maybe it was a very conscious decision that she took to be like, you know, I'd be surprised if it was like, well, the interesting roles for women require me to do a different kind of movie. But, um, but I feel like she never really got a big lead opportunity. No, um, I, I, I'll continue to hope for that, but yeah, this is, I, I thought the exact same as you, that this, this was, this was the kind of performance that she just made the most of every single moment she was on, on that oh, Alien Covenant. Oh yeah. And then there's Josh Brolin, who, uh, I, I, I was, so I had, I had talked myself into be convincing my, I had convinced myself he had gotten a best supporting actor nomination for this because he is, he is that good and, and he would have been very worthy of it. And yet apparently that didn't happen. Um, I think it might uh, be his, his best role that he's had. Oh my God. That, that chocolate banana scene. And Doc just watches him in the passenger seat. Oh, that's so wild. Um, Brolin plays it so straight laced. He is, he is a, he is a menace. He is what, what's the, uh, that evil shit twinkle in his eye that says civil rights violations. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, um, it's a great role from Brolin. Uh, it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's a refreshing way to, to paint law enforcement in, um, in these noirs because, because so, so often, I mean, we, we've, we've been through this, this cycle where the, you know, they're, there's a friendly but antagonistic relationship between the, the private detective and, and the law. And sometimes they're bumbling and sometimes they're, they're, they're the, a menace. And sometimes they're only there in a perfunctory fashion. But here he has a, this, this is maybe the, the first time in the entire season. And correct me if I'm wrong, that we have like a, a bona fide real antagonistic, like epic relationship with, with the law it's done better here than I've I've seen it done in any other film that we've had. Yeah, I mean, in part just because it's it's given so much more time. Like that is, I mean, he has more screen time with Brolin than he does with anybody else in the movie. Yeah, and, uh, and because it, it is so thematically relevant to what the movie's about, right? Like that it is the end of counterculture and the the mainstream, as as you know, literally devouring it. Yeah. And, um, and you know, like I, one, one thought I had in here between, between this, uh, between reading, um, reading some more pension between, um, the, the, uh, between, uh, Inherent Vice and Vineland and, um, and also against the day, uh, morphing that over to, to something that I, that popped into my brain from the Big Lebowski, uh, this, there's that moment in the Big Lebowski where where he's where he where the other Lebowski is yelling at him. The bum's lost, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that kept ringing in my ears as I was reading a lot of this tension, um, because against the day starts at the turn of the the 19th to 20th century, and there's this the, as much as the the book can have a plot, it's about uh, it's about uh, a family of anarchists uh, moving moving forward uh as the world kind of marches toward world war one and and things scattering and everything coming apart at the seams uh and flash forward to to pensions work in the in the 60s 70s 80s um inherent vice and and vineland covering that time and 
um, and, and you just see what's kind of become of counterculture and, and the efforts to stamp it out. And, and for all, you know, from law enforcement, from the elite to try and, and control it and, and tamp down on it. So yeah, the bum's lost. The bum's <laughs> lost. No, yeah. And I, I think you're right that, that in its way, the Big Lebowski kind of wraps up that through line, right? And then uh, our other movie that I guess argues like the the shallow remnant of what counterculture is today. Yes. Oh my God, I can't wait to to pick up on that thread there. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, another. Uh, just going back to the actors list. Um, this is another benefit of watch returning the movie this time. I was like, that's Hong Chao. Yep. That's Hong, and she she also makes the most of the the few scenes she's in. I think she's totally. quite good. Uh, uh, and then of course Joanna Newsom, Joanna which Newsom. I was excited as a fan of her music. Again, very boring white guy with glasses uh, opinion. <laughs> as a fan of her music, I was excited for her to be in this. And uh, and no, it's really interesting what she she brings to the narration. Yeah, um, that's um, that's also a change from the book. Um, I think it's a good one. Um, I think it's. Again, coming at the end of of this season, where we've been hammered with, we've gotten a lot of uh, we've gotten a lot of narration. We've gotten a lot of this is a lot the, of BDE. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to have to have someone like like Newsom specifically with such a gentle voice, um, really offsetting the hard boiled style that we have been accustomed to. It's not it's not filled with uh, knowing snark like Robert Downey Jr. It's um, it's not filled with with tough guy bravado it's um it it just positions us so well in that that socal of the 1970s kind of vibe and um and damn it uh, we if, if there's one thing that's that should be pretty clear by this point in the season is we uh we we could use more women in the mix yes um but yeah no it, it is like this is kind of the closest that we get to having a, a well uh, something said made in USA, which is kind of doing its own thing. Um, this is is the closest that we get to having a female PI and and having that kind of point of view to to what's happening, and it's appreciated. No, I like it. It, it helps. I mean, even just sort of in the context of what we're doing, where we've been watching a bunch of these, it helps make it pop. But I think it it also is helpful for what the movie's doing. So. So as far as what the the movie is doing overall, I think that that so so in so tied to this is the 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 sense of paranoia that is kind of sweeping over this, and this is something that's going to carry right into our next film too. Um, but but more than anything, like this is this is a paranoid film. This is uh, this is pot fueled paranoia, uh, and. And it's really the lens through which Doc interacts with the entirety of the world. Tied to all of that and, and, and this question of like, who's out there and, and what's behind it all. There's this golden fang, which is, um, which is one element that, uh, that I think, uh, speaks to a lot of tensions, playfulness with language and with our, our constant like reassessing of what, what even is the golden fang? Um, is it a ship? Is it a, is it a cartel? Is it a, a, a secret society of dentists? Is it uh, a bite from a vampire or some vampiric creature that, that attacks poor Martin Short? Um, what, 
that that's the kind of the the kind of open ended question that the the movie doesn't ever really care to completely answer, but kind of constantly wants to play with. Uh, and and I love that element of it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, to me a, a defining feature of Pynchon's work, and and there's always the pervasive secretive forces um, going back to Crying of Lot Forty Nine when you've got Stamp and Waste. Um, in secret, secretly running the world behind post services, postal services, and, and <laughs> trash collectors. If I'm remembering that correctly, again, I've I read all these books 15 minutes ago, so it's um, been quite a while since I've read Crying About 49. But yeah, I think that's right. Um, so no, and it's always that's always appealed to me the way he kind of takes that that conspiracy minded paranoia, but then treats it very matter of fact and 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 absurdly, and it's kind of like. You know, maybe there is, but if so, they're just a bunch of idiots like us. It sure makes me hope that Pynchon secretly got some other book in in the works that's going to tackle uh, <laughs> modern America because because it just feels like like we have caught up to, <laughs> to yeah. the space that he has always kind of operated in. Yeah, well, I think that's going to be a, a thesis for this episode. Hint, hint, and looking mm-hmm. at these two movies coming out uh, in the past decade and. Um, I've, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, America is, is, uh, rife for exactly this kind of paranoiac thinking and, and at least with, with Finchin, you get to have some fun along the way with like Martin Short doing lines of Coke and then <laughs> getting arrested. I don't know. It's, it's great. Oh, just so, so many great moments. When I, when I like had thought back to it, so before I re, before I rewatched, so much of it kind of came to a head in that that um, scene near the end where Bigfoot um, literally um, <laughs> just eats all of the pot, and uh, and it's like it's just him devouring counterculture itself, and that that's what stood out more more than any scene that like I, I walked away from. I was just like not I was not ready for that tonally. I was <laughs> I, I was not expecting that, and um, and. And so, but things like that are, 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 are throughout this. And there's all of these just delightfully absurd moments. And, uh, this is a movie that, uh, really, really benefits from revisiting. Uh, there's just too much to, too much to possibly take in on one go around. Yeah. This time around for me, actually, it was the, um, scene where Doc breaks out of where, uh, he's being held and has to shoot, um, uh, what's his name? The the Nazi. Oh yeah, Puck Puck Beaverton. Puck, yeah, Puck Beaverton. He has to shoot Puck Beaverton and um, and the pawnbroker, um, and then gets picked up by by Bigfoot. The uh, again, like this, watching it so closely with the long goodbye to me, that was the moment of the moment that Doc loses, right? That he, just like with Marlowe in the long goodbye. He is an easygoing man who's finally pushed to the point of, you know, taking uh, PCP and then having to shoot people to to survive and, and to set the world right. And that there there is no going back from that. And that that's as much as like Bigfoot eating the weed is a is like a thematically resonant image. That to me is the moment that the counterculture loses. Yeah, I think that's a a really great connection that you make and it didn't hit me it didn't hit me the same way um i think it's because in, when when elliot gould um fires that gun at the end of 
of uh, of long goodbye you know he's killing a, an old friend and you know that it like it's it's got that like moment of this guy has this guy right. has snapped this is this is him at a breaking point so it didn't it didn't hit me like that but you're totally right that is it's such it's not a thing that doc would do it, it is it is a thing done out of desperation and right. uh, scorsese's uh rock documentary what's uh where somebody gets stabbed it's uh you know, it's it's the moment where free love and good vibes gets taken over by the neo Nazis and the uh, motorcycle clubs, and it all goes to hell. Back back by big money. This, this is like the true button for me on on uh, our, our next our next film that we're going to cover is like a postscript almost in my head mm-hmm. um, to, but this feels like like bringing to completion this this really. The, this really core run that that goes from from the big sleep through the long goodbye in Chinatown through the big Lebowski right up to to here and just every everything the the LA noir of it all the the labyrinthine nature it's it just all um all kind of reaches its logical end here and then we get this we have a a nice zany postscript and and under the silver lake coming up yeah, we'll get into it in our next and final episode of the season, but it is kind of a shame that this is the last big noir. I mean, not that, I mean, it's a, it's a great film. I just, you know, wish that we kept getting this, but also, I don't know, thinking about it. They're, they're spaced the out, I think. Of, they're spaced out, right, that we yeah. have the benefit of watching them one after another in, in quick succession, but in reality, you know, the movies that we're talking about are basically like once every 20 years. Right, exactly. They're they're spaced out, and if they were happening every year, every other year, um, I I think that we would we would lose some of the impact of, of sure. that. Right, look at like, Star Wars. Exactly. <laughs> let's not do that. Let's not go that route. Well, in that case, let's go the other direction and go to a uh, underseen film, which also I should have mentioned to start uh, at the end of last episode's postscript I, uh, or introduction, I said the wrong year because I was had not finished writing the script and uh, discovered that mid-read and had to like pull that year out of my out of my butt. So uh, apologies if you listened to that last episode and got angry. Uh, I'm acknowledging in this moment that, that it was incorrect last episode, but Tristan wrote the script, so it's correct now. <laughs> Because uh, I can't make a mistake, apparently. I'm sure I've got a few. All right. Um, well, uh, let's check out the trailer for Under the Silver Lake. Come on in! I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. See you tomorrow. Good. What the? Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. Found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages, 
From Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could be any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Released in 2018, Under the Silver Lake was directed by David Robert Mitchell. Stars uh, Andrew Garfield, Riley Keough, Jimmy Simpson, Zosha Mamet, a handful of other recognizable faces. Uh, This, uh, though, really, this is Andrew Garfield's time to shine. Uh, Garfield plays Sam, um, who we find in a little bit of a spiral, insulated by his own world of pop culture and conspiracies. Uh, he has a rendezvous with a new neighbor, Sarah, played by, played by Riley Q. Uh, and that ends rather abruptly, and he finds the next day that she and her roommates have mysteriously vacated their apartment overnight. Seeing reports of a car fire that killed three women and a local millionaire, the already paranoid Sam launches into a nightmarish odyssey across Los Angeles in search of answers. Uh, so... This was my second viewing of Under the Silver Lake, uh, coming back to it after a couple of years. Uh, Fred, what about you? What's your relationship with this movie? Same. I, the last time I watched it, I'm pretty sure I watched it in theaters. Maybe I watched it at home. Um, it was it a pretty, home viewing for me. It had a pretty brief run, um, but it was playing the music box. Uh, but no, I, like at the time, I was initially very excited as a uh, fan of noir and noir as a fan of uh, Mitchell after it follows uh, I was I had I had high hopes and then uh, you know I think you like this movie more than I do I did I did like it more on second viewing and I kind of like was able to vibe more with what it was doing but um, it, I, it I think I would I would have all add up for me I, I would have said the the first time around that I really liked it, um, and I still like it, but I think I came down a little bit on the second viewing, and I'm just going to chalk that up to, I, I feel like my, my state of lucidity on the first viewing was perhaps um, in a different place, um, and, and, uh, and this is a movie that may benefit from such things. Um, anyway. I I recalled thinking that I, I I had found my way to its wavelength the first time around, and mm-hmm. I was a little bit more removed from it um, uh, when I came in with a more critical eye this time. Um, sure. I still enjoyed it, and I still think that it's a kind of spot-on pairing with um, for both with Inherent Vice and to kind of cap off the season. Um, just I feel like this is a good state of where things are at. Uh, uh, a little context on on this film. Uh, I I do not know how long David Mitchell had to pour into this to to get it where where it is, but this is absolutely overstuffed with symbolism. Um, it's everywhere. It's there to provoke. Um, I I however have not made any attempts to actually delve into it because I I feel like it's just not a level I wanted to engage the film on. But it's there if you want to. There's so yeah, there's much. A fascinating subreddit that is still kind of active that is devoted to unraveling the mysteries of this movie. They've decided that there's a secret code that leads you to a set of coordinates somewhere on the mountain in the area where they filmed the last part of the movie that, like, supposedly there's a treasure buried there. I mean, he is very purposely generating the exact kind of. Uh, conspiracy-minded thinking and, and searching for symbols and meaning that that uh, Sam gets into in the movie. 
And uh, yeah, personally, I have chosen not to go down that rabbit hole, recognizing it as a thematically relevant, but most likely empty uh, rabbit hole. Nothing, nothing at the end of that uh, rainbow in, in my mind. To me, the, the, this film feels like the far end of the, the, the train that, that starts with David Lynch, that starts with Mulholland Drive or with Lost Highway. And it's like, it's that kind of, it's the kind of film that gets classified as a puzzle film and that it's there for you to dissect and pick apart. And of course, I've got other feelings on that with Lynch because I don't actually think that Lynch is trying to, Lynch is not engaging viewers in that way. Lynch, Lynch, David Lynch is right. an emotional it's not, filmmaker. Exactly. It's not um, an intellectual exercise. It's it, a purely emotive, semiotic exercise that is meant to be felt. But people have imposed that onto, onto things like Mulholland Drive, nonetheless, uh, right. missing, missing the point, I think. But here, it's so consciously part of the point. Um, and, and it feels like it's kind of the, just because it's kind of disappeared into itself like that, it, it, it feels like the the death of the puzzle film. They're like, where 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 do you take it from here? <laughs> I mean, you could hope, but you know, JJ Abrams is still out there with his mystery box, threatening to strike again. <sighs> um, but but I'm I'm glad for its I'm glad that it's self aware enough to know that it, oh, totally. it, it's it's just having fun with that concept. Um, I don't think that this is this is not an emotional exercise. This is there. No. The, the, the similarities well, to, to Lynch here don't, to me, uh, hold up, but obviously he's evoking it. He's, he's, he's got mm-hmm. scenes that call strip specifically out to Lynch. Yes. Okay. I agree with all that. I do think it is. So for me, coming back to it again, having like now known the scope of it, to me, it is about like this guy who's gone through a bad breakup right and like is adrift after and is left directionless in a very kind of specific la world where everything is transactional and it's just a bunch of beautiful women and these douches are like kind of just see them all as the empty fantasy of their own particular dream and i agree it's a very intellectualized approach to that emotion and i also think i would enjoy the movie more if i was able to more directly access that emotion rather than having to kind of reason my way there but that was sort of what unlocked it for me the second time was just sort of really keying and on so there's um early on he's obviously smoking a ton of pot and uh although i don't think we ever see it on screen him doing it but you know it's it's clearly implied that that's a lot of what he does and uh i could be making that up that we don't see it i honestly can't remember but it, the important thing is uh rather kiao asks him do you smell something and he says oh i saw a skunk earlier and she's really in silver lake and he goes yeah they're all over and then a skunk appears like a scene or two later and actually does spritz him and so that to me is like oh okay so reality is undone right like it's it's not that he's uncovering a real mystery it is that he is imposing his like spin lies obsessions needs onto the world and perceiving it and everything should be sort of taken with a grain of salt from here on out 
Yeah, uh, that's. Um, I, I think that's a a really good call because this is not that. In at a certain point, you just have to kind of let go and go along along for the ride and accept that we're we're unhinged from from any real any reality that that we we know we're we're in hollywood we're we're so steeped in movie references he lives in an apartment that is covered with classic universal monsters um it's it's just drenched in in all sorts of movie references right. um He's explicit and uh, rear window activities yep. She's a recreation of the Monroe movie that didn't get released because Monroe died in the middle of filming it when he sees her in the pool in the dream. The topless, um, the topless neighbor calling um, long goodbye immediately. Like that, right. that connection then, is is, yeah. is kind of made clear. And she's into How to Marry a Millionaire, right? That's the name of the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the uh, three um, Monroe yeah. and uh, yeah. Uh, no, it's down to the like Mitchell programming his own breakout indie movie at Forever Cemetery uh, for a screening, uh, which is uh, and having the one of the leads from that be the you know actress slash uh, sex worker that that he he meets and and calls uh, the the short cropped redhead. Yeah, every. There, there's nothing. There's nothing radical. accidental. It's all. It's all very deliberate. It's all. Le- it's all designed to lead you in different directions. I don't know. I don't know that it means it's. It's sound and fury, signifying nothing. Right. Right. And that's the thing is that like, if you can let go of that need for it to mean something, at least for me, if I was able to let go of that need for it to mean something and was able to position it as. The, the important thing isn't the actual meaning. The important thing is that Sam is going to such great lengths to impose meaning when there is none. And and to me, that is the the like core of the movie. Yeah, um, I, that that is the one. I that is the one thing that kind of holds up the the center of it. And everything else is is just noise. Uh, there's a and speaking of noise. There's um, there's certainly a lot about. Music. There's the whole scene with the songwriter. Um, I, I, again, I don't know that the. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's probably folly to try and impose much, much direct meaning onto this. But you know, it, you, you still, I guess, you can't help but grappling with some of those bigger concepts that he's he's throwing out there. Right. I mean, it is a. Uh, it is my favorite scene in the movie. Like it is just a, in and of itself, a great I, scene. I, I want more. I want more things like that out of it. I find what mm-hmm. I, I want it going for it and going big and bold and weird. Um, and maybe you can't do that too often, right? No, I but, agree. I don't know. Like, I feel like it is trying to do that, but then it gives you stuff. Uh, to me, the probably the least satisfying was the uh, the final reveal, the the secret pyramids, and the like. We'll live down here for six months and then we'll die, and like. I don't know. It's all it, it all kind of like hangs together as a statement about the secret meaning of everything is really that corporations control culture and and uh, you know the movies that he loves, the Nintendo video games, the music, like all of that stuff is is the is actually owned by uh, and controlled by corporations that are 
you know, not using it necessarily to do like subliminal messaging and and send out secret codes to the rich, but more just are like it's it's about money, right? Like that's that's the secret. Yeah. Um I um I don't know. Um I don't know how to like pick apart I don't know how to pick about performances beyond Andrew Garfield's. He's kinda He's kind of, you know, hold, holding the whole thing down. Um, everyone else is just kind of um, splitting in and out um, as as the narrative needs them to. But uh, but Garfield does quite a good job. Um, I think he's I think he's a very talented actor, and I think he is properly um, just out of his head here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, it it says I would not say that he is a sympathetic figure by any stretch, but it's him punching a kid in the dick. Yeah. Um, it, with, with someone less inherently likable than Andrew Garfield, sure. you would be off the train of this movie so much faster. Um, I, I, I think that, I think it took someone who just feels like a, a, a warm, trusting presence like him to, <laughs> to keep this from going, um, out of, uh, off the rails. What do you think of the ending? Like, what do you make of where uh, that to me, I think is probably another thing that kind of keeps the movie at arm's length for me is the like it, just them um uh, the him outside looking in watching right, as they, they as they uh, look at his own his the symbol on his door that uh, as he as he sits with his um with his neighbor yeah i i mean i think it's i think it's an attempt to like have him step outside the narrative um, mm. to to kind mm. of be looking okay. back in. I don't know that there's I I'm sure that I'm sure that David Mitchell would have there's all there's so many David Mitchells. We have we have like three of them, right? Uh, I'm yeah. sure that David Robert Mitchell has has much more point in mind to that. Um and I would be happy to discuss it with him. But I, I think to me we'll it's just like drink. just tell us what you tell us what exactly everything means and we will buy you one beer. One. Just one. I know you're listening. If you, know you're if, out there. <laughs> um, no, I think it's just stepping outside the narrative. He's he's removed. He's outside of his apartment. He's got a he's 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 outside looking in. Um, in a way, it's a reminder that that there it that through all of this, if that if anything really is happening, if if we are to believe anything that was going on, it's that he was getting evicted from his apartment. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> But that's interesting, like, because they, they react to, and again, it's sort of like, well, how much is he imposing? But I wonder also about the, because the, what is the, now that I think about it, the um, the hobo code, the, like, is that a warning sign, the, the double diamonds? Is that what yeah. that means? Uh, or it's a, it's a, like a guide, right? It's a, Was it the guide? The, it, it's like something, something to, to know, I don't know, to, was it to mark like a safe place or to mark a place that you, I, I'm, I'm probably getting that wrong. No, stay quiet. That's what that says. Okay. never mind. I was hoping there's some kind of connection there of like him under maybe like not just stepping outside the narrative, but also finally being able to look at his own life and see that he is something that other people need to be warned about. Right. That like, that the the arc of the movie is that 
he realizes that he's a shitty guy and that he's bad for women. <laughs> he is one of he is one of the the monsters that <laughs> that I is really depicted like on as well. He's, I he's think a why, like Topher Grace is such an important part of this this movie is because he is like using a drone to spy on his naked neighbor and then she starts crying and they're like well that's weird and then they just turn it off I'm like well too bad that was gonna be fun watching her like like the movie is very point and um uh what's his name jimmy uh jimmy simpson jimmy simpson yeah like is another just like it's really interesting how how well drawn the like shitty guys in this movie are right that like these are these are the three like male characters who are all like fucking useless but they're hanging around in this fantasy world that la has created that's filled with these beautiful women who are all trying to you know make something and achieve something and they're just kind of able to to drift in their wake and so i, I was kind of starting to wonder if maybe that was like his his arc of moving through this breakup and then finally being like am i am i the bad person but i don't think so i really do like juxtaposing that with the with with everything that's come come before it just like this this thought of like like but what if this is our detective what if what if what if this is the detective all along and we strip away the 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 fantasy of getting to be that 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 male hero that that gets to move through all of these spaces and 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 has that privilege and what if what if in reality this is just what he looks like because you know i think moving into our our compare and contrast mode here you know it is that is a really good point that this is taking that that power fantasy to an extreme where you're like it doesn't give you a reason at all to believe it outside of the fact that like andrew garfield's still a, a handsome guy but he's not charming in this movie he's not likable he's not you know as opposed to he's broke he's you know there's there's he has no selling points he whereas, smells he smells like a skunk he he's like a skunk. He, he he does not have many redeeming qualities and no. he's he is definitively he is as far removed as we can get from that bogart element of cool there is yeah. there's nothing cool about this guy whatsoever why would anyone want to be him? Why would anyone want to be this this detective? Um, yeah, and so it's. I think it is maybe underlining that the way that these other PI stories create the fantasy by making the larger than life main characters, where you can say like, "Oh, sure, like I buy that Humphrey Bogart or Jack Nicholson or Elliot Gould or um, you know." Even even uh, the dude can like be with this woman. Although the dude is is also kind of playing with that to a certain degree with with uh, uh, what's her name, kind of just doing it for the to have a baby with a man with the same name as her father. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the the dude still the dude still is is cool. Like the, the dude's still the, cool, and the dude, the dude still is, is like a good person. Right, uh, he is both of those. Um, and, the, protagonist here. and and all of this uh really like especially in talking it over it, it further reinforces that i do think this is a this is a, a really great noir text and i think it pairs really nicely with everything that's come before it it feels um it feels appropriately placed in in our discussion here 
And it just, um, it's just such, it's such a different vantage from what we've been approaching it the entire season. And, uh, and it's nice after, after getting um, this parade of, of hero detectives to, to see what, what he looks like, less heroic, less yeah. uh, just stripped of all redeeming qualities. <laughs> And steeped in paranoia and and uh, and toxic masculinity. Yeah. Well, I think also it is speaking to the times, right? And so we, you know, one of the reasons these we wanted to pair these together is the, and we referenced earlier, is the unsettled feeling that the world and the U.S. especially finds itself in. That you know, you've got your your huckster president who convinces half the the voting population that he, he his election was fraudulently stolen without any evidence and uh um i'm actually reading right now this book about cults and the way they use language but also the way that um there is especially in the u.s because it is you know thanks to a bunch of colonizers colonizers coming and taking it from a variety of Native American tribes, it is a country without history or tradition in the way that most countries do have, on top of which it's a country founded with the idea of uh, freedom of religion. And so in general, whenever there's times of unrest, you'll see a lot of flowering of, of alternative belief systems and explanations for the world and ways to find meaning. And especially in the U.S., it is just a, a empty because not only is there unrest, but it's compounded by a government that does not care about its its people, and there's there's no like social safety net. So you really are you left feeling like if something goes wrong, I'm on my own here. So many people turn to finding explanation and meaning and uh, reason for the world, and the church doesn't offer that anymore. And so you wound up with this. You know, it's interesting watching these. Um, Right as uh, Bombach's White Noise is released, and while I don't think it's an entirely successful adaptation, um, it is definitely you know it's another huge post-fiction, post-postmodern uh, novelist being adapted to the screen and and uh, by by a really interesting auteur, and I think it is sort of dealing with similar themes just not in a noir context of uh although the last the last third is is a little dips into it a little bit i guess but the same sort of like alienation from the world and and search for meaning in the face of like death being the only thing left to you i i watched white noise but i've not read it and um and i can you can tell watching it what what a difficult task it must be to to grapple with that source material but it does it does have flashes of brilliance um and oh, yeah. uh and and so you can tell that some some truly cool concepts are moving through from the novel but it but like how do you encapsulate how do you encapsulate the postmodern novel and right i mean cinematic just, just like with, with um inherent vice it is a very specific tone that the the book has that it allows it to operate that i think bombach is able to to get at at certain points in the movie but uh but anyway i think the reason that it that movie feels resonant and why probably he has wanted to do it besides just liking the book is again is that it is it is the modern moment it is the this feeling of what what does this mean like we've 
we've been stripped of national you know nationalism and we've been stripped of this that and the other thing and and so we are all adrift in the internet awash in symbol and 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 noise without any actual meaning to any of it the uh the the tv show that that hits that that um that i haven't seen any anything else really do with that level of of success is um is lodge 49 which is not a surprise because it's it's very pension inspired um but but like that that's one of the only other media examples i can feel like really kind of um finds that right that right dial of obscurity of of absurdity uh to mm-hmm. to kind of tap into and uh and you know pull all of the weight of the modern world in alongside it right because i think i think absurd is the right word is is the thing that these two also share is the response to the overwhelming deluge of noise is absurdity that like that's the only possible rational response is to laugh because otherwise you can cry and and film grappling with postmodernism is is interesting because there's more like in a in in novel form um especially if you're an established novelist like um like like Pynchon or or Don DeLillo, um you you can you have a certain degree of freedom but but films are so inherently uh beholden to investors and to and to audience expectations that I think delivering on those kind of thing, it, it takes the right, it takes the right auteur who's got clout, who can push forward a vision. Then on top of that, it takes having, uh, being able to successfully kind of push it through. So in, and it, in both, in both cases of, uh, of our films, uh, before us tonight, uh, the, there, there's certainly a, a real degree of control that the, that the director has been able to assert over this narrative that's been able to, to, to open it up in ways that a lot of uh, I wish more films had the means and ambition to try. Uh, well, as we're kind of bringing these together uh, and, and teeing up what will be a, a discussion of of uh, of the entire season, are there any other other parting thoughts to kind of string these together, Fred? Uh, no, <laughs> not not for me. No, um, uh, I think I think we've kind of kind of covered it here. You you aptly named our episode the signal signal to noise. I think this is a good way to to close things out as we as we're left wondering, you know, what uh, what does any of this mean? What are we supposed to pay attention to? Um, how much? How many of these clues have ever actually mattered that yeah. our detective has encountered? No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's all. How it's much is it the whim of the narrative? Um, actually, it does remind me of one that just that, and we touched upon this briefly in the the Kids Are Not All Right episode where we talked about Brick and the Kid Detective, but that, as you pointed out, this is our third and final millennial protagonist for the season. Um, and I think he is of a piece with those other two characters in that it is, uh, you know, again, really about what our generation is 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 feeling and feeling adrift and just trying to yeah create meaning and purpose out of the internet but this as, doesn't as rendered as a series of overwhelming visual competing signals or this doesn't chronologically follow but but if you um if you go from um from joseph gordon levitt in brick um and, and then through 
um, through Adam Brody and then to um, to uh, Andrew Garfield here and just follow the line of those characters. The like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is still projecting that cool factor. He is he is still he is operating much more in that traditional genre mode and and just updating it for a, a millennial audience. Whereas here at the far end of that, we get the we get the total breakdown of of uh, of, of paranoia, of, uh, of toxic masculinity, of, of a, of a, of a broken, of a very broken man that, uh, is a terrible person. Um, Adam Brody is nowhere near far gone as that, but he's obviously, you know, dealing with his he's own also issue. broken. He's just not a terrible person. Yes, exactly. And he gets to heal at the end of it. And up to the, up, up to debate what, if anything, Garfield takes away from this whole journey. Well, uh, that brings us to the end. But of course, before we, we conclude, we have uh, our typical installment of What's in the Box. So, Brad, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase? Uh, the two movies I have long meant to watch and I finally crossed off the list. First is The Coen Brothers, A Serious Man. Um, when it first came out, I was like, this doesn't have any guns. This doesn't have schemes gone awry. Why would I watch this? That's what Coen Brothers do. And it's probably for the best I didn't watch it just because I don't know that I've been able to appreciate what it was doing. But at, at this point coming coming to it, I was like, damn, this is one of their best. Uh, it, it is just a densely packed uh, exploration of the absurdity of life, speaking of, um, but through a specifically, you know, Jewish lens. And... Uh, and also, uh, Deacons the God is is just next level with his uh, what he does with the camera. And no, I I thought it was fantastic. So I'm glad I finally watched it. If you've been holding off because you're like, oh, that's not the kind of Cohen's thing I like. It's it's worth finally teeing up. Uh, I don't know. Have you did you are you a fan of? I do like it, but it's, I've not seen it. I don't think I've seen it since theater. So, uh, it's been a very long time and definitely due for a rewatch on it, but I do, um, I, I did like it at the time. Uh, I also probably like many others was like, yeah, this isn't the big Lebowski or Fargo. Um, or no country for old men. I, I liked, I liked it more than no country, but I'm also less of a no country fan. Uh, Weirdly. Uh, and then the other one is Suspiria. Um, the, yeah, the, I tried to watch it a few years ago and just kind of went in with the wrong expectations. I went in and was like, I think it was my first time really looking at, and this isn't Giallo, but it's Giallo adjacent and just sort of Italian cinema in general. I, I hadn't had that much exposure to, and I think I just went in expecting a Western horror movie and was like, that's not what this is. Um, so I'm so glad I finally came back because I was like, oh no, this is just uh, a, a, a fairy tale a nightmarish fairy tale and it is a beautiful and transcendent one. Um, and it's as somebody's just, letterbox review says, uh, he, he invents red with this movie. It, it's to me, it's just this, this perfect union of, of image and sound and, um, and just that, that score playing over and all of the colors bombarding you. And it, it it's a sensory experience and, yes. um, and what a thing for a horror movie to be that, that more ought to be like that. Agreed. No, it was, uh, it was incredible. So I'm glad I finally watched it. What about you? Um, I had 
two, um, I've, I've seen a lot since our last recording, but I had two really good theatrical experiences. So I'm going to highlight those. Um, one of them was just this last Sunday. Uh, I got to see for the second time in theaters, uh, the red shoes, which speak of, um, speak of uh, brilliant use of color. Uh, I, I'd previously seen it on the big screen at the music box. Um, so it wasn't even my first time. It's probably my fourth time seeing overall. But damn it, it's just one of the best movies ever made. I, I, I adore it so much. The, the, the color, the cinematography, yes, but the storytelling. Um, of course, there's that fantastic, like, 20 minute ballet sequence that, that is right in the middle, but, but it, which is just one of the most stunning things ever committed to film. Um, but, but truly, really appreciated, um, this time around the brilliant storytelling behind it. Um, Emmerich Pressburger, could write a hell of a script. Um, the foreshadowing is just right. Character introductions are on point. Um, I, I, I love everything about that movie and it is absolutely one of my all time favorites. Um, so I would never pass up a chance to see a Powell and Pressburger film in theaters. It's no, it's great. It looks great. Plays great. And I think for me watching it, I was, it kind of underlines the paucity sometimes of modern narrative storytelling that like you know that we've we've had a run of movies about like artisans dedicated to their craft and what it costs them and what that what you know what that weight is and it, it is like you know black swan or whiplash or whatever and it's like so keyed in on their like interstate and their psychology but it ends up in a world that and i, I really love those movies but it ends up in a world that is like purely defined around that lead and it is so impressive to me how thread shoes is able to do that same thing but also have a fully fleshed out a world around our three leads that that is also doing like is full of life and i i paid so much attention this time around to the supporting cast in it um, which are really really bring a lot of life to it and the first time you see it, I feel like you're so taken in because because Moira Shearer is just glorious and Anton Walbrook is just so commanding as, as the impresario. But but there's so much that this movie has to offer. I, right. It, it's as fully functional as a backstage um, drama as it is uh, this, this character profile that these other movies are also doing. Um, so, yeah, no, it's that Martin Scorsese knows a thing or two about movies. So when he says it's a great movie, okay. I think we should all listen. I think I think that you may be right there. Um, the other the other theatrical experience I had that I do want to highlight not not perhaps as grand as the Red Shoes. However, um, it's still in theaters. I'm pretty sure uh, y'all should go watch Patan, which is a a uh, high octane Bollywood film. Um, the the return to leading manhood of um, Shah Rukh Khan. Um, it's got Shah Rukh Khan. It's got Deepika Padukone. Um, it's got John Abraham. It's got, um, it's got a wonderful Salman Khan cameo. Um, it is, it is wall to wall, two and a half hour long action. Um, so many more set pieces than I can count hopping across the globe, everything thrilling. Um, I, I was, I was delighted. I cried at one point. Uh, I was aroused to everything that you could possibly possibly want in a movie is is all there um it it cuts out all slack um it you 
You want fights in the air. You want fights on the ice. You want fights in Dubai. You want fights on a train. It doesn't matter. It's, it finds room for everything. Um, definitely worth seeing on the big screen. Um, it's silly. It's dumb. But it's a hell of a lot of fun. Patan. All right. Uh, another one for me to track down. I appreciate <laughs> you kind of so, uh, marking out what, what movies are worth tracking down and uh, as you explore the... Uh, Bollywood and, and uh, associative uh, markets and, and film traditions. Yeah, you had a, not to further sidetrack us, but but you had something that you, um, I feel like you brought up on a recent Letterboxd review I saw citing film critic Hulk and the, and the, the um, uh, art of um, not knowing yet how to appreciate something. And I really, really love that sentiment. Uh, and and like the it takes a while to kind of gain an appreciation of a different of of a different country's way of making films or a different different schools of thought when it comes to filmmaking and it just takes kind of a bit of immersion and plunging in uh which is why it's a it's better to not be a hater it's better to just i don't know i think go in assuming yeah. Yeah. that that you know you may just not be on the wavelength of something yet but um doesn't mean it's not worth it. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me with Suspiria. The first time I went in, I just did not understand how to appreciate it yet. And then fortunately, the second time I returned to it, I was like, oh, I get what it's going. Or actually, I was just having a conversation with somebody. We're really dragging this one out. I was having a conversation with somebody about um, Crimes of the Future. And they were like, well, you know, I, I was disappointed that it wasn't Cronenberg, like, body horror. And I was like, well, I don't think that's really the movie that it's trying to be. So... You know, you you got to meet the movie and the filmmaker and their intentions to a, to a certain degree in order to understand and appreciate what what the movie's doing. Yeah, um, and yeah, movies they're a beautiful thing. Um, right. Turns like out that's why we're here. Um, so uh, we're going to wrap things up for the night, y'all. Uh, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at CelluloidDirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle CelluloidDirt. We will see you next time for our final episode of the season where Fred and I will look back on a year's worth of detective dissection and see what, if any, sense we can make of it all. Sure to be a fun recap of favorite finds and half-baked theories, so join us as we attempt to define just what exactly this genre means to us. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>